can follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Spratt. You can check no. out... Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not your Twitter handle at all. It's not No, that's all. your name with an at in front of it, but it's not your Twitter mm-hmm. handle. It's, it's not you just that. don't put an at in front of no. things? <laughs> no. You can't prove it. Oh, oh. You got nothing legit. Oh, oh. The glove don't fit. Oh, oh. You got to equip. Oh, oh. I didn't smoke it. Oh, oh. That's all you're going to get. Oh, oh. I'll never admit. Oh, oh. I never took a hit. Oh, oh. The charges won't stick. Cause Monday morning I'm a brand new man. Tuesday catch me if you can. Wednesday night. Welcome to The Docket, episode 49. My name is Michael Spratt. I'm Emily Tammon. Hi, Emily Tammon. Hello. How are you? I'm good. It's been a long week, but uh, feeling good. Ready to record a podcast. It's been a really long week. Halloween. Halloween. Um, you know, our listeners might be wondering, oh, they have children. What did their children go as for Halloween? That's who, besides the point. Who cares what That's they went as? besides the point. Why don't we talk a little bit about what we went as? What did you go as? I um, I want to. Say, I went as an inanimate object. Well, it's partially animated, but <laughs> I was a Pokestop. Uh, I was adorned with a lure of hearts, and I think it was a pretty awesome costume. It took a lot of work to build. Who, who made that costume for you, or did you buy it somewhere? Uh, it was a handmade uh, artisanal costume. <laughs> And uh, you uh, were kind enough to construct the um, the wooden parts, the the Pokestop part, and I made the lures, uh, which involved well, really, your mom cut out the felt hearts, and I sewed them together. Uh, but the reason that I was less involved in the making of my really awesome Pokemon at Pokestop costume is because I was busy uh, sewing away on your Let's costume. Let's move right along. <laughs> I was a Smurf. You were, I mean, you were generally being identified as Papa Smurf. I think a more appropriate moniker would have been Creepy Smurf, myself. Smurfs don't wear shirts. Smurfs go shirtless and wear blue body paint, apparently, which is what you did. Yeah, so um, maybe we'll post a picture of that. We might. We might want to. Uh, The unfortunate um, side effect of us spending... Uh, an entire day working on our Halloween costumes for our neighborhood Halloween party was that our children children's costumes on the other hand were like um put on a headband and paint some whiskers on your face and go trick-or-treating it was it was like I think we have some mildewed costumes in the basement (laughs) it was it was a little sad but the thing is they're not they're not that into it they're not into it like we are I don't I feel like sometimes who are they and where did they come from if they don't share our love of Halloween I painted a Ninja Turtle shell for the boy. Yeah, and it looked awesome. Uh-huh. And he it's did like ultimately get into it. They're much, much more into the candy and the trick-or-treating, but you can't be that kid who's in some lame, like, barely costume costume that just goes around asking for candy. It's, no. no. Can't do it. Yep, so that was fun. That was really fun. We had a good, like, probably at least 150 kids to the door, if not closer to two. I gave out a Pokemon mini comic to every child who could correctly identify my costume or was with another child who could correctly identify my costume because it seemed a little mean. Ooh, and there was a legal themed costume that came to our house. Yes, that's right. We saw um, a young teenager uh, wearing a badge that said Second Amendment. And so I said, oh, an American constitutional costume. Okay, that's interesting. And then upon closer examination, and he pointed us to the fact that he was wearing. Um, 
furry brown long elbow length gloves and uh, he said he had the right to bear arms and he was wearing bear arms so that was a good punny you know for the law geeks among us that was kudos to that kid he got a he got a comic pretty good um so we did that uh, do you know what I didn't do this this weekend? What did you not do? I did not go to the Criminal Lawyers Conference in Toronto. No, you did not. It's very unfortunate timing with Halloween. Um, it's been an issue in the past. I was also doing other stuff. You were also doing other stuff. You were busy with a bunch of work-related stuff. Your mom was in town. Uh, but I know it's a great conference and you always enjoy it. And the um, Minister of Justice uh, federally spoke the conference and um, that was a bit of a to-do so it would have been probably fun to be in the audience for that. Yeah I watched the Minister of Justice Jody uh, Wilson-Raybould's speech uh, to a bunch of criminal lawyers and civil rights lawyers. Uh, I watched it on Periscope while I was working on um, my constitutional uh, application to strike down uh, the conservatives so that the former government's retroactive changes to the pardon legislation that went back in time and removed the ability for a number of people to get pardons for an extended period of time. I'm challenging the constitutionality of that law. So as I was uh, drafting uh, that application or working on my oral arguments for that, um, I found it a bit ironic that the justice minister was talking about all these progressive justice policies and lofty ideals at the very same time her lawyers uh, were opposing or were trying to support uh, a conservative law that uh, ministers in the liberal government have called punitive and um, driven by ideology and, and things like that. So it was slightly ironic. Maybe it's a good thing I wasn't there. And it is tricky because I, I was sort of thinking to myself, like, you know, before they were in government, they were critical of this, um, you know, mechanism. And... And now, you know, they claim that they're going to look at changing it. But in the meantime, they're expending enormous resources to justify its continued existence. And I'm not sure, like, what they can or should do in this situation. I they mean, should consent to my application. Well, I think the, the where I do see, like, a legitimate conundrum is they, they're not going to concede that it's unconstitutional because... I mean, unless they, unless that is 100% their view. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that it is. But um, they're saying they want to change it as a matter of policy, not necessarily because it's unconstitutional, but because it's bad policy. And if they concede that it's unconstitutional, then they their hands are completely tied, right? So, um, but surely there must be a way that they can um, concede the application without prejudice or, or know, maybe as grant I, an exemption. Maybe as I suggested, commit to bringing in new legislation instead of just talking about exploratory maybe looking at things but they weren't willing to do that well and this is kind of like we talked about the victim fine surcharge last week like this would not be this is not part of an enormously complex web of legislation i mean they could fix this one little thing very easily um all they even have to do is remove the retroactivity i mean if for for now like they could if they still want it to be 10 years which i think would be wrong-headed on their part but they could at least for now since that isn't your client's case they could um it very easily and with simple legislation say, okay, it's not going to apply retroactively. And then we're going to look at whether, and really that wouldn't affect anyone convicted since they came into power because you'd anyway, you'd have to wait five years. So if yeah. it takes them fewer than five years to fix, then there's no harm to people that are currently in the system. But anyway, I just think it's, 
I think they could be a little bit more creative. And this is how I feel, you know, very much, as I've said many times about Bill C-51 as well, is they've said that... Anti-terror legislation, spy legislation, crackdown on civil rights thought police legislation that uh, was advanced by the conservatives and opposed in part by the liberals saying that they would fix it when they were in power and they yeah, haven't fixed it. And they've acknowledged that parts of it are problematic and within the context of the broader discussion that's taken place on those problematic aspects, it turns on constitutional considerations. And meanwhile, a year's gone by and it's still the law. So, you know, I think they, they need to get their priorities in order and start dealing with the things that are pressing because this is pressing. If there are unconstitutional laws that are in effect and that they are actively um, seeking to defend until they can do something about them, I think that's very problematic. Well, we launched right into that without any context or preamble whatsoever. (laughs) Um, But maybe let's do this. So my constitutional challenge against the retroactive pardon changes, which are punitive and mean-spirited and unconstitutional, I'm going to argue, uh, that's being heard on Monday. So on November the 7th. So let's come back uh, next week and I can tell you how it went, what their arguments were. Spoiler alert, they're sort of crazy, but <laughs> we can talk about that. We can throw a little shade and maybe have a larger discussion and flesh out the issue on that one a little bit. Let's do that. Um, but the other reason I wanted to bring up the, um, the Criminal Lawyers Association Conference is uh, a good friend of ours, Frank Adario, a fantastic lawyer in Toronto, won the uh, G... Arthur Martin. Arthur Martin Award, um, which I think it's the 28th uh, uh, time that the medal's been awarded. And such luminaries as uh, Supreme Court justices like... Um, and Louise Arbour. And there we go. LaMare <laughs> and Fish, J.J. Robinette. Um, I mean, the list of people who have won this award is uh, incredible. And uh, our good friend Frank uh, Adario won it. And he gave a speech uh, the day after the Justice Minister gave her speech. And it was a bit of a barn burner. He just, I think, really captured in a um, just really incredible way uh, the, the systemic challenges that our justice system is fixing and the role that defense counsel play. Um, in trying to uphold basic standards of decency and justice and constitutionality within a framework that is, uh, I think, increasingly broken, in particular in terms of um, proper resourcing. And in a way, I mean, there were parallels in the themes to his talk, um, as there were with your piece in, um, that we talked about last week about the, uh, the, the, fr- the free labor of just uh, defense lawyers kind of keeping things going in the system. So he, he talked about that. Um, but I, what I what I appreciated about his remarks, and we will post them because I think they, they encapsulate in such a nice way, not only what the role of defense lawyers is, but the way I think most defense counsels see themselves. And when we post them, where would people go to to read those? We'll post them at michaelspratt.com. Do I need to say more? No, that's where it is. Yeah, michaelspratt.com. I really need a better name for that blog. I know, seriously. Especially because, uh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, there's a Tamman involved. But anyway, um, Frank just said some really good things. I shared um, his remarks with my students, and uh, I know some of them have already looked at them and, and picked out some of the pithy bits. Uh, but it just he's, also, he's just a really funny guy and a good storyteller, and, and I, I highly recommend uh, that our listeners take a look at it. And so I have a, an op-ed coming out on Monday about the Justice Minister's remarks 
and how words matter, but actions matter more, and there's been a lack of action. And I think um, Frank sort of encapsulated it all with the closing of his his address, addressed to the justice minister who was there the previous day, saying that the you know the answers to our criminal justice problems aren't missing. Um, it's the will to change the status quo. That's what's missing. Yeah. And actually, one one part of his speech that I thought was interesting, because I don't know that I had ever really specifically turned my mind to this aspect of it, but was that he talked about how the voice of accused persons or even the voice of defense counsel are generally more or less absent at the policymaking table. Um, and, you know, I think about, you know, yes, people like you are often invited to, you know, speak for five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes or, you know, up, up to an hour sometimes to committees of parliamentarians and senators. I think it'd be fair to say that at times you're greeted almost with hostility. So it's not exactly like a round table, right? Or, or those who disagree with you will tend to discredit you on the basis of your profession um, and, you know, imply things about your character and your integrity by virtue of what you do. And only half of those are true. <laughs> but, you know, I think that was like a, that I had never really thought about it that way, that, you know, the government side lawyers are more in the nature of the prosecutors. Um, yes, there are policy lawyers who aren't per se prosecutors, but they're all working they're, for the state. They're all prosecutors. The justice minister was a prosecutor for about 30 minutes. Like, they're all prosecutors. Yeah, no, but I mean, there are there are lawyers that work for the government who are not former prosecutors, but they're still counsel for the state, right? And so um, I thought that was a really interesting perspective. And he was basically urging the justice minister, minister to appoint someone. I mean, I don't know if he was, like, hinting at any particular person. but Over to, here. Yeah. What? <laughs> but to appoint someone from... With a, with a long-standing background in criminal defense. One person does come to mind um, in the wrongful conviction section. I, I, he may be retired now, but Stan Cohen, who I think um, was perceived... A, I don't know if he was a defense lawyer, but he was definitely perceived as a civil liberties person. And, and Frank really poked at a lot of the, the systemic issues from underfunding of legal aid, over-representation of Indigenous people in the justice system. Um, he, he mentioned the um, funding crisis that Innocence Canada is facing, which is, is really critical. So... Um, there's a lot in there, but that particular point was one that I had never, I guess, just directly thought of. And I, and I thought that was very interesting. Um, so I think today let's talk about three-ish areas. Mm-hmm. In addition to the two we've already talked about. <laughs> well, you know, it's a free flowing discussion. That's right. Once we have our intern on the program, we'll have a nice solid structure. With a script and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what, uh, let's talk about the appointment of the new Supreme Court judge. Yes, let's talk about that. Because um, I think you have some stuff to say about that. Mm-hmm. And then I want to talk about how um, our police system is racist. Okay. You know, just why not? Yeah. Um, and then I think lastly, let's talk about segregation some awful cases of segregation here in Canada. And let's link it back to some stuff that we've talked about before, the bail system, how we can change what's going on inside our jails right now. Mm-hmm. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. So no fancy editing. Let's just jump right into it. Jump right in. We have a new Supreme Court judge. We have a new Supreme Court judge. We talked about it really briefly uh, last time, I think. But um, Justice Malcolm Rowe appointed from the Newfoundland Court of Appeals. So it's our first um, ever Supreme Court judge appointed from Newfoundland and Labrador, which is really exciting and great. And I think, um, you know, is a little sliver of diversity, I guess. Because um, he's a visible minority too, right? Um, like his, he's an audible minority. <laughs> he has a Newfoundland accent. 
So you're saying he's... He's a white guy. A middle-aged white guy. He's a white guy. Maybe even a little older than middle-aged. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he seems like a great appointment. He seems a totally legitimate jurist. I think, um, you know, one can't help but turn one's mind to kind of the politics that were at play because it was pretty strongly implied that uh, a much wider net was going to be cast and there was quite a bit of backlash. And, um, you know... And I guess for, for people who weren't following it, let's break it down a little bit. The government, in their call for applications, which it was a first for a Supreme Court job, um, you didn't have to apply before, but now you did. They said that, that for this appointment, which traditionally by constitutional convention had come from the Maritimes, from the East from Coast, Atlanta, from Atlantic Canada, sorry, New Brunswick, um, <laughs> that uh, they were maybe going to cast the net a bit wider and consider applications from across Canada. And you're saying there's a bit of a backlash to that specifically. Yeah, the government justified that approach um, on the basis that because they were they seek to prioritize um, enhancing diversity on the court, which I think is a laudable goal. And of course, we're in favor of that um, as a principle. Um, that if they were going to find, you know, the top people in the most diverse group of candidates, that they were going to cast a wider net. They also committed, and we've talked about this before, but to um, appointing a bilingual judge, that that's now going to be a, a requirement uh, for this prime minister. Um, and so the the sense was that, you know, to ensure that they get the best pool, they're going to look wider than just Atlantic Canada. And and initially, the, the backlash coming out of Atlantic Canada was actually kind of muted and my perspective on that is that it's because all of the members of parliament um, in uh, Atlantic Canada are liberals. <laughs> so it wasn't as though, you know, I think they were trying to be a little more delicate in expressing their um, dissatisfaction with that. And ultimately what happened was um, a group of lawyers launched a challenge. So certainly I think um, the prime minister was not looking to appoint someone who was then going to be challenged in court. Um, and so, you know, they're saying... You know, they, they said all along, well, we're committed to ensuring um, that the shortlist includes people from Atlantic Canada and regional diversity is, of course, a component of what we're looking to do. Um, but in the end, you know, they appointed a white guy from Newfoundland. So they almost seem to be trying to leverage the Newfoundland part to say, see, we, we did diversify. We've never had someone from Newfoundland, which is fair and great. And I'm happy for the people of Newfoundland and not Labrador. But anyway. So um, it's a, a maritime appointment, which is good. It checks off the constitutional convention box. Um, he's fluently bilingual. And his French is very good. His French is good. I was a little bit skeptical, I have to say, because when the announcement was first made, all the media reports were saying um, uh, Mr. Justice Rowe self-identifies as functionally bilingual. And I was thinking... <laughs> well, the, the really sort of weird part of here is that, that not only did the Supreme Court applicants for, for that position in the Supreme Court have to apply, but they actually released Justice Rowe's application form, which I have to say, the writing on it, not the most engaging or, or you know, is very technical and, and, and sort of not an easy read. But one of the things that he uh, says in his continuing education was that in August of 2016, so right when he make the, made the application, he took a, a French course. Yeah, and that's why I had I had heard that too, and so I thought, oh god, this is going to be you know rusty, dusty French. But but as a component of the purported newly transparent appointments process, um, there was um, he appeared um, at a it was basically a town hall type of situation that was actually um, hosted by the the law faculty at the University of Ottawa, 
and uh, I went and uh, observed. So it was it sort of had the feeling of a committee structure because there were parliamentarians and senators um, there who were given an opportunity to um, ask questions, and the discussion was moderated by the dean of McGill Law School, Damien Jutra. But um, so the first thing that struck me was actually how good his French was because he um, had a prepared opening. Um, where he talked about his personal background and you know, growing up in a fishing village. And, and, and he has had a very diverse and interesting career that has, um, he was a, a foreign affairs officer, so he was abroad. He seems to be exceptionally qualified as a jurist. Exceptionally qualified. But, you know, he delivered some of his remarks in French, but, you know, it's always easier to deliver a prepared remark in French than to speak spontaneously. But in the course of the proceeding, um, number one, to his credit, every time he was asked a question in French, he answered it in French. And he answered it with you know, very commendable uh, fluency. So so that's one point that I think is a go. So there was this hearing or dog and pony show where people got to ask questions. And, and I think we should be careful for maybe some of our listeners who aren't in Canada or, or don't follow it quite as closely here. This isn't like a confirmation hearing like they have in the States. There isn't a vote in the House of Commons or the Senate to confirm uh, to confirm the appointment. No, which is why I'm finding it a little bit annoying how um, Justice Rowe is being referred to as Trudeau's nominee. No, like, he's not a nominee. It's He's the, he's Trudeau's appointee. And um, there doesn't appear to be any mechanism in this um, you know process between when he's, quote, nominated and when he is appointed, um, whereby anyone could interfere with that nomination. So I find it, it was actually irritating. And every time I referred to it on Twitter, I would put it in quotes, like, oh, Supreme Court, quote, nominee, because it, there's no, it's, it's in the Prime Minister's sole discretion. And um, and I think it's a little distasteful to like to it. have the, like, the pol- uh, politicization of, of these appointments. I mean, I remember that when we were watching the last presidential debate between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, there was some talk about who they want on the Supreme Court. And not and only why. did they give a list of who they wanted on the Supreme Court, but why they wanted that person. And then, you know, expressed opinions about how that court would decide certain issues like reproductive rights or, or you know, the right to bear arms and things like that. And that was just so distasteful from the Canadian perspective. It's so foreign. And, and this process isn't anything like that. No, and so this is the thing. Is we, and we wouldn't want that. So, you know, on the one hand, I'm saying this process, you know, beyond... Um, Canadians being able to say, oh, I saw Justice Rowe. He seems really nice. He's kind of funny. He's got an accent. Like, I don't think it really enhances transparency in a particularly meaningful way. I don't think it's a, a harmful or negative process. But, but that's it, how it's billed by the government, the, that this is a process that enhances transparency or fully transparent. When It's hard to be transparent about an appointment like this when we don't know who applied we don't know, you know, what the discussions of, of the committee was. Who else was on the short list? Who else was on the short list? There's a committee of people who recommend a list of names. We don't know who was on that short list or what criteria other than these broad criteria, some of which weren't followed or, or checked off. We don't know any of that. And, you know, we can't really ask anyone any of that. And this is just sort of a, a more of a meet and greet. So it's this sort of faux transparency that puts a veneer on things, but it doesn't really do much to be transparent to the extent that you want to be transparent. I don't think it's worse than it was before. I don't think it's better than it was before. I, as much as it, it sounds counter to, you know, all of my natural instincts, I didn't really have a problem with the process that we had before because 
by and large, you know, our experience with it was that it was taken very seriously and our Supreme Court appointments have not been hyper-partisan. And, um, and nor has the court following those appointments. Uh, yeah, even but- even when there's been a perception that people have been appointed, that have been someone's friend, like they, in the end, they appear to really render their decisions fairly and neutrally. So, you know, is it is it a bad thing that the public, you know, and a whole bunch of law students got to come and see parliamentarians and senators question the judge? And, and so just to, to give some context, like, number one, it was it was made very very clear from the outset, and some of the MPs and senators tried to skirt very close to the line here and were shut down a little bit. But that Justice Rowe would not be in a position to answer any questions about any of his own previous judgments in terms of the substance of them or his reasoning beyond what's in the judgment itself, uh, any of the Supreme Court's existing jurisprudence, or any hypothetical questions about how he might decide a case in the future. So you know zero of the content can have anything to do with his legal opinion. And I think that's appropriate because he should be deciding cases based on the facts and law before him and and fine, you know. Um, But so the types of questions were, and, you know, like maybe it's nice for Canadians to get to hear this and to hear this kind of debate. This is the one area that I actually thought was, you know, kind of interesting was on his application, he talks about how the Supreme Court is more than just an error-correcting court. It is also a lawmaking court. And that's true. And and that is part of the court. And role. some conservative parliamentarians' heads exploded at that point? Basically, yes. And so a number of the questions from the conservative members and senators, including the very first question, were about that. Now, they were asked very in, in a very non-hostile way and, and asked him to elaborate. And he gave an excellent answer about you know the difference between statutory interpretation, common law development, and constitutional norms and jurisprudence. So did he basically say that as a Supreme Court judge, you apply the law as written by Parliament, but if that law is in conflict with the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, then there's room for the court to strike down that law or modify yeah, that but, law to bring it in conformity with the, the Constitution. Yeah, he, he basically said, like, it was actually, I liked how he said it. He said, the Charter belongs to the people. And the role of the court is specifically to encroach on the will of parliament, where parliament has encroached on the constitutional rights of its citizens. Like it was, it was, it was nicely articulated. It was great, and and he was able to, in a compelling way, I think, articulate the distinction. He said, when it comes to statutory interpretation, where constitutional conformity is not an issue, it's the role of the court to give effect to the will of parliament specifically, and to try to find the will of parliament in the words of the statute. And he said, you know, and sometimes we might get it wrong. Sometimes we might you know, in trying to give effect to what we think the will of parliament is, we might get it wrong and then parliament can come back and and correct us by changing the law. Um, But when it comes to the constitution, you know, it's a different story. So, so that was great. Um, And that was probably the one quasi substantive, you know, he, he was asked a little bit about um, indigenous law and that was very interesting. Although again, he had to be very careful not to wade into, you know, too, too much, but it showed certainly that it's a person who's given thought to reconciliation and, and issues that the court is going to obviously have to think about. One that I really appreciated too was um, Murray Rankin, who's a, a new Democrat member of parliament um, and a former law professor. His questions, I thought, were so geared to the student audience. The majority of the people in the audience were law students and not just from U of O. I think um, some law students had come in from other universities too. And he asked some questions about like, what's your style as a judge? Um, are you really interventionist? Do you um, do you interrupt counsel a lot, like specifically in the oral hearing? Like, do you just sit back and listen, or do you ask a lot of questions? What's your tone like? Are you sharp? Are you? And I just thought it was interesting. And and then he also asked about 
um, how important are the oral submissions? And these are things that like really are neither here nor there. In ter- I don't think really in terms of the quality of a, of a jurist that he is really, but I thought it was, um, they were some nice little questions for the, given the audience. So maybe my last point on this is with the Supreme Court and with the Senate, isn't the first thing that should disqualify a candidate the fact that the candidate applied for those jobs? <laughs> I mean, specifically in, in the past, you know, there might not have been necessarily, you know, the mountain climbers, the attention seekers, the the people who are in it just for the glory. Those people certainly exist. And I certainly know a number of counsel who would be fantastic lawyers, but aren't necessarily going to apply, but would serve if asked. And I don't know, the application process itself strikes me as, as a bit odd. I It strikes me as odd as well. Although having said that, I do think, you know, it used to be the case that no one ever applied to be a judge ever at any level. And that's been very much changing. And so I do think culturally, like, you know, we've talked before about how the legal profession is so reticent to change. And it's like, but you don't apply to be a judge. Someone just taps you on the shoulder and asks you, well, the more it becomes just entrenched that, you know, it it won't be long before on the superior court, the majority of people on those courts will have applied, right? So um, I I think, you know, it, it rubs me the wrong way as well. But I think, you know, there are, and there are some old timers who never would because that's so deeply. And we had talked about this, I think, when the new process was first released that like, I hope they're going to consider every court of appeal judge, even those who don't apply. Did they? I mean, it was unclear. Like when who I, knows? When, we, we, when I looked back, it said there was something that suggested that, that they might consider people who hadn't applied, but it wasn't clear. And you're right. I mean, who knows? Because you know, who I'm knows? never going to get my shit together to apply for anything. <laughs> You had to fill out like the form in triplicate and like write essays. Small, it was it was a pretty streamlined application. It wasn't too crazy. It took me three years to get the kids' social insurance <laughs> numbers, and I just did that today. <laughs> well, then, then it took you more than three years. <laughs> That's true. Anyway, so that was uh, that sounds like a pretty interesting way to spend a day at the law school. Yeah, it was good. I was excited. I had to like pull some strings to get myself invited. But now oh, I have a- wait a second, who invited you? Um, I was invited personally by Justin Trudeau. No big deal. I have a letter bearing his electronic signature. Is it a real signature or is it an electronic signature? Oh, it is definitely a stamp or something. I mean, I assume. Uh, because I saw other people posting the exact same letter. Um, but yeah, I had to I had to ask to be invited. <laughs> but I did manage to get invited, so I was thrilled to be there. So let's um, move on and talk about another light uh, subject. Racism. Racism. So let me give you the background. Well, you know the background since I do. You saw me get upset and mad and yes, go on a bit of a spree. Um, but in 2005, a young black man in Ottawa was pulled over because he was black and he was driving his mother's Mercedes, and that was grounds for the police to pull him over. Apparently, it wasn't, and he launched a, yeah. a complaint before the Ontario Human Rights Commission uh, for racial profiling. And as a result of the settlement of that complaint um, in Ottawa, uh, recently completed, was the largest ever Canadian study of traffic stops uh, by police officers. And so between 2013 and 2015 in Ottawa for a two-year period, 
Every police officer, when they made a traffic stop, for whatever reason, had to record the race of the individual and, and a bunch of other information, including why they pulled them over, what were the repercussions, were they ticketed, were they charged, were they let go? And the results of that study were released last week, and they were shocking, but not very shocking at not all. Not good. Not good. So just like with carding or street checks, um, where police stop people on the street to ask them questions, it should come as no surprise that a disproportionate number of visible minorities were stopped by the police. Yeah. So where um, that the, the highest disproportionality occurred in the Middle Eastern population, um, where uh, something in the neighborhood of 3.3 times uh, uh, the disproportionality between the number of Middle Eastern drivers and the rate that they're pulled over, more than uh, two, two times uh, disproportionality between uh, the percentage of um, visible minority black drivers and it's, driving and when they were pulled over. It's considerably higher for men too, right? Yeah. Like but I mean, white men versus <clears throat> exactly. Middle Eastern men, yeah. But so we're seeing a lot of visible minorities pulled over. Um, and it was a it was a comprehensive study done by uh, researchers from York University who looked at the data. And the most shocking part, I think, isn't just that more visible minorities are pulled over, but when those minorities are pulled over, they're disproportionately released without any charge or any subsequent action. Or more or less at par with the, the white population, right? With, with yes. So, so it they're, means... they're, they're not charged more, but they're pulled over more. Yeah, exactly. It means that visible minorities are pulled over more and but not charged on a proportional basis right. more than white drivers. I know, and I love how part of the institutional response that was purporting to say this isn't systemic racism. I mean, look, they're not charged more. It's like, yeah, exactly. That's it the says point. it, it right means in, people are being pulled over unnecessarily. It says it right in the report that the reason for that, uh, or, the, or that the explanation is that, is that visible minorities are being pulled over for no reason. Um, which means that if you're white and you're pulled over, it's because you're committing an infraction, most likely. And then you're charged. If you're black or Middle Eastern and you're pulled over, it's because you're either black or Middle Eastern, um, or police policy is operating in such a way that disproportionately uh, affects uh, those groups. So it wasn't shocking at all. But what I found shocking was the, the police force's response. Me too. I mean... I don't think anyone is really shocked by the data. I mean, I think it's 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 been well documented anecdotally that this is happening. And so I don't think it came as an enormous shock. But the immediate, immediate rush to minimize, to discredit those who were raising the flags about racial profiling was just, it was so alarming. I mean, for me, I think it calls for there are people who need to resign because of this. Yeah, so I mean, the response was uh, a response of uh, denial by uh, Charles Bordelot, who's the chief of police in Ottawa. He said that, let's be clear, this is what he said, let's be clear, this study doesn't prove that there's racial profiling. The study, of course, doesn't prove there's racial profiling. You can't prove profiling or systemic racism. Um, it's ingrained, it's deep-seated, it's based on unconscious beliefs, and no one's saying that there's individual officers who are Klansmen who are running around terrorizing groups of minorities. That does happen. We've just had an officer found guilty uh, of making um, horribly racist remarks in Facebook posts about Indigenous people. So there are racist police officers, but no one's saying that's what's happening here. 
But what the authors of the study say is, yes, it doesn't prove that there's racial profiling or systemic racism, but it's consistent. The huge disparity is consistent with it. And then when you put that together with disparities with respect to carding, racial disparities with respect to arrest and prosecution for marijuana offenses, for example, it is a piece of evidence that strongly indicates there's a problem. And that was dismissed on its face by the chief of police. Yeah. And a couple things about that. I mean, a study like this isn't going to prove racial profiling because that's not what it's setting out to prove per se. It was not a study whereby police officers were interviewed about their, um, you know, about policies and like it, it just... Yeah, they're they're trying to look and see if just on the basis of routine policing, there are disparities that can be identified. And the Ontario Human Rights Commissioner, who we're going to have on the podcast hopefully next week to talk about this more. We better have her on now. Now I said it said aloud. It. But, um, you know, she came out and said, and I thought she was so measured in what she said, which is why, you know, the response to what she said pissed oh, me off we'll so much. Oh, we'll get into that. Yeah. But, you know, she said exactly that. This is consistent with racial profiling. And she even went on when I heard her on, on CFRA. I know you heard her, too, talking to Evan Solomon. She said, you know, it's it's not inconceivable that there could be a benign reason, um, an explanation for this that isn't racial profiling. Um, but if there is... Let's find out what it is, because the default um, reasonable inference is that there's something very troubling happening here. And if there's not, great, let's find it out so that we can, you know, regain faith in our institutions. But come on, you know, uh, the, the, the minimization and the flippancy and the, oh, of course, these these types of people are going to say this about us. I just thought was... You know, really, really, really disappointing. Not that I've come to have uh, remotely high expectations of, you know, the, the police association president or the chief of police. But it was just, I would have thought that if they had even the, the sh- smallest, thinnest shred of political astuteness, that they would have been, you know, expressing some kind of concern about the numbers and a motivation to get to the bottom of what they represent, as opposed to basically saying, screw you guys, you know, let us just carry on doing what we're doing. I just, it's it's a disgrace. Yeah, so um, I spoke with Evan Solomon on, on the radio station here about it, and, you know, I expressed my concern and and examined some of the data and stuff like that, and, and you know, that I was content to leave it at that. And then after I was on, uh, Matt Scoff, who is the uh, president of the Ottawa Police Association, uh, was on the radio and he called the Ontario Human Rights Commissioner, her position, um, that it was consistent with, ra- with racial profiling and we need to explore what, uh, what's going on, which is exactly what the report said. He called her a petulant child. He said that he fully expected uh, these results, and when asked what he was going to do differently, he said nothing. It was going to be business as usual. And in response to that, I wrote uh, a post about um, how systemic racism is often difficult to combat because there's no face uh, to, uh, to systemic racism. It's ingrained, but we do have a face now. And the face of systemic racism is Matt Scoff, the, the president of the Ottawa Police Association. Um, the, that, that was run in the newspaper. Um, we had some other discussions about it on, on some of the media. And then Matt Scoff blocked me on Twitter because uh, he doesn't like being called a racist garbage clown. Like, talk about petulant child. I, I mean, like, who's the petulant child in this equation? It's Matt Scoff. 
you know, and, and it's disgraceful. And the lack of leadership is disgraceful. And I'm trying to just gloss over what you just said, because yes, you called Matt Scoff a racist garbage clown, (laughs) but you know, I don't think, and they just, they don't need to get their backs up. Like it's in their interest to fix this. It's in their interest to have the public trust the police. And the more they behave this way, the more confidence in this very important institution of policing is eroded. And that's not good for them. I seriously had this thought like last week where I was like, Ugh, we should just wipe the slate clean and start over. We just need to get rid of all of these guys and just build a new police well, it's, force. It's disappointing. I mean, like the mayor didn't really speak out about it. Jim Watson, he didn't say anything about it. It's the way that you sort of combat institutional problems is by people in leadership roles discussing those problems, shining light on it and and taking them seriously. Uh, And that's not what's done here. I mean, I think that there are some points that are worthy of discussion. For example, one of the statistics in the report is that only uh, 11% of these traffic stops was the officer aware of the race of the individual prior to pulling them over. Now, that's what they say. We can call BS on that. But let's take it for what it is. There's some valid points to be made there. Because again, that doesn't show that individual officers are necessarily pulling people over because of their race, although I'm dubious about that. But that would suggest that perhaps that's not the case. But it may suggest that general deployment, policing strategies, that those are systemically flawed. Because, you know, if you're pulling, if you're going to neighborhoods that that are composed of a disproportionate number of visible minorities and pulling over cars for no reason, then you don't necessarily need to know the race of the people before you pull them over. You're going to disproportionately affect visible minorities. And the point is that that activity is happening in those communities and it's not happening in rich you know, predominantly white communities. And people will look at that and say, well, that's because they need to do more policing in high crime areas and and this kind of thing. But what you have to remember is we're talking about people being pulled over for no reason. And who have committed no crime and are let go after they show their papers to the police, which sounds awfully, awfully, awfully dystopic and callbacks to some horrendous times in human history. Show us your papers. That's not what we want. No, it's not what we want. So, I mean... You know, hopefully, uh, uh, you know, you know who I really feel sorry for is the good, hardworking, um, equality-driven police members of the of the Ottawa Police Force. I mean, it must suck to be, you know, a good cop um, and to have your union standing to have your union standing up for ridiculous positions, defending bad cops. It must be awful because I have to say that. You know, I have problems with a number of police officers. I have problems with sort of general policies. We can disagree about issues about whether officers should carry guns, if there should be random checks. We can disagree about all those issues. But predominantly, and I know some police officers listen to this, predominantly, those officers are really good people. They are. And what's really disheartening about having such shitty leadership (laughs) is that it could very well be that some very high potential good you know, starting out of the gates, cops are nonetheless being influenced by a culture that, you know, minimizes, justifies and protects um, all the wrong people. And so, you know, here's hoping that the good ones out there, and I know there are more good than bad for sure, 
um, can find a way to provide leadership from within the institution, despite the quality of leadership, um, you know, at the most senior levels. And are concerns about sort of systemic problems and institutionalized problems with respect to disparities and how people are treated based on the color of their skin or socioeconomic uh, situation, or, you know, if you're from a vulnerable population, uh, the homeless or people with mental health issues, it's not just police, it's the justice system, it's the court system, it's prosecutions, it's probation, it's the jail system, it's all of our institutions. And it really sucks when you have one institution who's refusing to step forward. Yeah. So there's that. So there's that. Um, and lastly, let's talk a little bit about um, torture. <laughs> Or as we call it in the Ontario Correctional System, um, four years of solitary confinement. <sighs> that was my audible sigh, if you didn't quite hear it. I don't even know. I, I don't even know what to make of this. Like, you set it up. I can barely even talk about it. All right. So here's the Coles Notes version. Adam Capay is an Aboriginal youth from Thunder Bay. He found himself in jail for uh, a minor property offense. Well, in jail, it was alleged that he uh, killed another inmate. A fantastic example about how incarceration and prosecution for minor offenses can lead to very serious problems and a cycle of, uh, of incidents that can be devastating for everyone. And he was 19 years old at the time. Yeah. So he found himself in custody. Um, he found himself uh, charged with uh, committing murder. And then he spent 1,560 days in solitary confinement. This is a 5 by 10 foot cell. Um encased in plexiglass with lights on 24 hours a day with uh, exposure to the sunlight only when he went uh, for yard which happened about once a month with contact so limited that when people talked to him he uh, forgot how to speak and was unable to communicate conditions so isolating that it caused his lawyers to question uh, whether he was fit to stand trial. And we've talked about this on other podcasts, a case in Ottawa, where someone accused of uh, murder was driven literally insane through conditions similar to this. And ultimately, uh, Mr. Capet engaged in self-harm. He tried to commit suicide. He cut himself. He was hearing voices. Um, this is undescribable beyond that. I can't imagine. I can't. I, I, I mean, I, I saw something. I didn't look very deep into it, but that Howard Sapers, the correctional investigator, <clears throat> said that he's, I think he said something about not being aware of these plexiglass, like, all open, solitary confinement units. Um, um, or certainly that he'd never heard of a case like this. And the government response is sickening, including... We don't think there's anyone else in this situation, but we're not really sure, so we're trying to find out. And there's all kinds of legal 
mechanisms in place that require reporting of how long a person's been in solitary. Every 30 days, there has to be a report to the minister when someone's in solitary confinement. And that means that multiple ministers in the government in Ontario would have been or should have been made aware of this situation. And to make it worse here, Yasser Nakvi, who was um, uh, the minister in charge of the file, toured this jail. He saw these conditions. He saw this individual. But he claims... He doesn't recall. He doesn't recall. And so, um, you know, we call there's we call that one of two things in court. Either an outright fabrication and lie or willful blindness. You saw it, but you didn't want to see it. And so you pretended you didn't. Can you try not to confuse my students? Because we're going to be talking about willful blindness next class. And I feel like you didn't quite like 100% perfectly articulate. The if you're listening, students, that's basically it. But we're going to flesh it out a little bit. You more. know it when you see it. <laughs> um, the other troubling institutional aspect here is that the new community safety minister who took over from Yasser Nakvi, when Yasser Nakvi became uh, the Attorney General of Ontario, um, of course, now that he's the Attorney General, he's not commenting on the case and he's forging ahead with a prosecution, even though that this murder charge will be stayed, will be thrown out of court for one reason or the other because of this treatment. Because of his treatment, because of the four years... Because of neglect, because of this four years, because of the treatment, because of mismanagement by those in authority, we will never have a factual uh, finding here. And, and, you know, victims will go with, you know, their concerns left unanswered. Um, this is why you got to do things right. But He's going to be released way worse than he went in, that's for sure. Of course. And um, we have our new community safety minister, David uh, Orizetti. Um who uh, his comments about about this incident and about segregation uh, were completely uh, shocking. He said that um, you know it was pointed out the four years that this violated the UN Convention on on torture by like heads and shoulders. You know their their upper limit is thirty days, <laughs> and the, or it's so, fifteen days. I think I think it's fifteen. The government's official position, as articulated by David Orzetti, uh, is that holding prisoners in segregation for years on end without a trial is not ideal, <laughs> but sometimes necessary because uh, there's limits on space. That is the most unacceptable response. Now, keep in mind, this is the same minister who, after it was revealed that prisoners at the Ottawa Carleton Detention Center were sleeping in the showers, went on a tour and said... Not that bad. Oh, the showers are bigger, than I, bigger than I thought. This is in the same way that closing your eyes to systemic, you know, racism in the system is does a disservice and is actually what allows the the rot to grow. This is the type of comments from a minister that are appalling and that should demand uh, a resignation. Accountability. One um, point of the story that I just want to highlight, because I do think it's worth noting, is how the story was uncovered. Because um, now when I say uncovered, that suggests that no one knew when, in fact, every 30 days, presumably, uh, the minister responsible was being advised that he was there. And every guard knew. And I will say, and the facts of this, I'm sure, will come out at some point. 
Where were his lawyers, his defense lawyers? What was going on? Well, does he have a lawyer? I mean, he does now. Now he has a good lawyer. He did. He had he lawyers did, at the time. There's a news story that's out. We'll post it that, that names a lawyer and goes through some history and stuff. And there's not enough detail in there to really lay blame or to, you know, armchair no, quarterback. No, he fired his lawyer at one point. So, but I mean, I think there is a breakdown on multiple aspects here. Right. But what I wanted to say is that, you know, when I say um, how this was uncovered, I mean, publicly uncovered, is that one of the and guards uh, made a report to the Ontario Human Rights Commission and I actually good for him exactly I think or her yeah thank you uh, speaking of human rights um, I uh I it makes me it gives me hope to hear of that happening you know that um Prison guards, like police officers often get a bad rap and often for good reason um but at the same time it must be heartbreaking and really, really challenging to work in an environment where these are the conditions. Um, and I'm sure they would say, you know, you know, I'm saying this guy's going to be worse when he comes out than he went in, when he went in. It makes their work conditions a lot worse too, right? To have people that are just progressively, um, you know, unraveling before their very eyes. And this is a kid. This is an Indigenous kid. I mean, it's 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 awful. And so kudos uh, to the the guard that came forward with the complaint and that you know, and then to Rainy Mundini, who we're going to have on the podcast, hopefully, the Ontario Human Rights Commissioner, who, um, you know, really uh, exposed this. She went and visited with him, and she has talked in really heartbreaking detail about her experience meeting with Adam uh, for the first time. So uh, I think that's that's at least a little small bright spot in the, in the story is how it came to light. I think one of the most important things to convey here is... The fact that, you know, you look at this and you say, our system's broken, right? The jail system is is broken. The way that we incarcerate, the way that we prosecute, the way that we police is broken. And I fundamentally disagree with that. Uh, the system isn't broken. This is exactly how our system is designed to work. Our system is, wor- is working exactly as it's supposed to yeah, work. The system's not broken. It's just a shit system. Exactly. That's yeah. the problem. So we need to we need to change that. And and speaking of changing that, just one little other little shout out that I wanted to make is that you know we all know that one of our um, previous podcast guests, Kim Pate, one of the big champions for the rights of incarcerated people, um, has been appointed to the Senate. So you should go back and listen, download, and listen. I don't care if you listen. Go and download that episode <laughs> and listen to Kim Pate talk to us about. Her 30 years of advocacy on behalf of incarcerated people. What a fantastic appointment. So good. So happy. I feel like um, these are these are the types of people. These are the This is the type of person, you know, coming back to what Frank Adario said and, and certain perspectives missing at the table. This is it. Kim, uh, I can't wait to see how she does because she's not exactly a conformist. So how she's going to carve a role for herself. And I know she'll do it. And you can see from already the things she's been saying, how seriously she takes it and you know who she sees herself accountable to. And uh, it's it's pretty awesome. So congratulations, Kim. We're pumped for you. I'm sure she's listening. She listens. Does she? Yeah. Hey, Kim. <laughs> how are you doing? Congratulations. Um, so, look, moving from... Uh, segregation issues which i hope we'll talk about more next week um this relates back to some local stuff that was going in at ottawa there was the problems at the ottawa jail where prisoners were sleeping in shower cells where the jail was overcrowded where there was violence where there was bad conditions and um there's a task force struck by uh, then minister uh, yasser nakvi um to examine the conditions at the Ottawa jail and you know what should be done 
And one of the things that, I mean, so there's an update to that report that came out, which I found completely unsatisfactory. And um, I think had some outright misleading sections in it. Do you know the report says that when you're in custody and you have a day-long trial, it only takes two to three months on average to get that trial date in court? Um... (laughs) laughable to the extreme um so i mean there are some problems in the report the report does a lot of saying that things are going to be fixed because we're consulting and we're talking and we're not doing anything substantive it's just words at this point but one of the underlying problems that remains unaddressed is problems with the bail system because as we know most of the people in local remand centers over 70 percent of the people are not actually found guilty in serving a sentence but they're waiting for their trial Um, so there's lots of pre-trial incarceration going on and a lot of that stems from problems with their bail system that it takes a long time to get a bail hearing that the justice system both crowns police and and justices of the peace are reluctant and risk averse to release people. They require onerous conditions. They require sureties. It takes a long time to book your hearings. It takes a long time to have the hearings. The hearings take a long time because they're like many trials where the crown goes on asinine cross examinations of, of sureties. And it's just a quagmire of, of awfulness. Yeah, the whole procedure, um, I think, illustrates a profound reluctance to ever have anyone be released you know like the hearings themselves are structured to make it very very difficult for people to get out and you know you referred to the onerous conditions the result of onerous conditions is just further clogging of the justice system because conditions that are unduly onerous or unreasonable result in breach charges which then brings the person back before the court needing another bail hearing on another set of charges and the cycle continues and so uh i talked to um someone that you know about that that's right. So my students have an assignment where they have to go to court, and it's due tomorrow, everyone. Don't forget. Oh, by the time this is released, it's late if you late. haven't handed it in yet. Um, they have to go to court. They have to observe a trial, a guilty plea, and a bail hearing, and um, write about it in various ways. And one of my students, Sarah Skinner, is a uh, former court clerk in Winnipeg, and she emailed me after um, having sat in on a couple of bail hearings because she was almost, I would say, confused about... Um, what she was seeing in the Ottawa court because it differed so profoundly from her experience as a clerk in Winnipeg. And um, I remember when we first moved to Ottawa and you had articled in Toronto, you were also really struck by the way bail hearings are run uh, in Ottawa and how the procedure differed um, from Toronto. So that right there, I think, is something that's worth talking about, that you know we're supposed to have a uniform criminal law in this country. And the fact that um, I understand, of course, um, under the division of powers that the administration of justice is uh, lies with the province. But um, the fact that even city to city, you can have such a different approach. And um, so anyway, so I said to Sarah, I said, that's really interesting because we had noted that too when we first moved to Ottawa. And I said, I'd love to you know, get you in touch with Mike. And anyway, one thing led to another. And she was good enough to come in and meet with you and do a little quickie interview, just setting out the differences that she saw, which I think... Um, was was really really interesting to me so let's end with that we'll we'll play uh the clip of me talking to sarah and then um we're done yeah and just one thing i want people to think about when they're listening to what she says it what what clearly comes across is that the um bail hearings are more expedient in winnipeg than they are here and for reasons that she's going to set out one thing i'd be really really interested to know is um what and we can probably look into this what the rates of release versus detention look like there versus here uh, for similar offenses. Because I don't take it as a given 
that it's de facto better for bail hearings to be faster. Um, I mean, I think... I do. <laughs> well, no, not if it results in the person being detained more often. I don't. <laughs> because you just want to get in and get out faster. No, but I, I'm just saying, like, I, I would like to know whether um, a, a streamlined process... Um, is is better or worse in terms of outcomes. It sounds like a fantastic but, but project like for good, one of your students to work on, perhaps. Yeah, but it, it but or or an academic somewhere. But it it certainly um, was really really interesting to see, and it was there seemed to be a degree of innovation procedurally there um, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, with that, Sarah, thank you for um, joining us on the docket. And before we go, we'll say um, we do this at the end every time. I feel like we should do it at the beginning. Um, people can follow you on Twitter, right? That's right. At Emily Tammon. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Spratt. You can check no. out... Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not your Twitter handle at all. It's not No, at that's all. your name with an at in front of it, but it's not your Twitter handle. It's, it's not. You just don't put an at in front of no. things. <laughs> no. It's at M. Spratt. Yes. You can check out um, the webpage uh, for this podcast on, on the worldwide interweb um, at AOL. No, <laughs> at uh, michaelspratt.com. Uh, and if you like the podcast, just uh, download it on the iTunes machine um, because then it shows up as a little bar graph on our computer and it makes us feel popular. That's right. It's all it does. It doesn't get us any money or anything. Not yet. Everything in its good time, my sweet. Um, All right, so let's kick it over to my conversation with Sarah, and uh, we'll see you next week. Uh, My name is Sarah Skinner. I'm a first-year law student at the University of Ottawa, and I am in Professor Tamman's criminal law class. (laughs) And so uh, I asked you to come down to my office. Thank you for coming. Thank you Uh, for having me. (laughs) No worries. To talk about bail. Because I understand that you had a career before being a law student. I did. I worked previously as a court clerk in criminal court in Manitoba, mostly at the Winnipeg Courthouse. And as part of Professor Tammon, which is hilarious to call her that, (laughs) but as part of Professor Tammon's class, you had to go down to the auto court to check out how things were done here. I did. And I was very surprised at how bail is run here in Ottawa. So what sort of, um, what was your experience sitting in on a bail hearing here in Ottawa? First of all, I was surprised because I ended up talking to the court clerks here in Ottawa and uh, they said they'd run two bails in a day. And I started comparing this to my experience working in Winnipeg where we often run 40 to 50 in a day. Uh, and I thought, how can they, how can they do this? What, what is this tempo? <laughs> And I sat in the next day on another hearing, which took over an hour. And I was very, very surprised. So when you were a um, court clerk in Winnipeg, Mm -hmm. you said you had like 40 bail hearings in a day? Right. So how it happens in Winnipeg, um, there are two separate bail rooms running at all times. So from Monday to Friday, starting at 10 o'clock a.m., there is a list made of accused who are waiting to apply for bail. And from that list, uh, they're streamlined into either domestic violence, bail court, or other offenses. And then of those 40 cases, did they all have like completed bail hearings? Or how did, it, like, right. how did a bail hearing work in Winnipeg? So of those 40, those are the applications for bail. And generally, a, a list is made, and we just go down the list. Uh, each bail takes about 20 or 30 minutes maximum. 
the Crown Attorney reads the facts and uh, states on which grounds uh, the accused should be retained in custody, and the defense lawyer then has their submissions, again, 10-15 minutes, and then the judge decides. And the di another difference that I noticed was uh, here in Ottawa, it's a justice of the peace who does bail hearings as opposed to a, a judge, like in Manitoba. Here, one of the issues that has been identified is not only the length of the bail hearing, but the complexity of the bail hearing. Right. So the Crown will read in the synopsis, I guess similar to, to what you experienced in Winnipeg, but then will sort of conduct a mini trial and spend a great deal of time going through evidence and statements and presenting forensics and sort of running a mini trial. Um, and then the defense will, and the court usually insists, that the defense call the proposed sureties who are going to be part of the bail plan to the stand to be examined and then cross-examined by the Crown, which, you know, can take a long time to do. It can take an hour to, to get through sort of a detailed cross-examination of, of a surety. In Winnipeg, did, did the Crown just read the synopsis or did they sort of run a mini trial and go into more depth with respect to the allegations? That is such a good question. Um, the Crown in Winnipeg is very averse to bringing evidence in a bail hearing. I think in, I want to say, the hundreds of bails that I sat in on, I only saw evidence called a handful of times, and I never saw a surety appear to testify in court. Uh, they've streamlined the process so that sureties appear in a different section of the courthouse, and uh, Crown attorneys are generally opposed to having a named surety uh, appear before a judge. They'd rather have an unnamed surety and have that part dealt with outside the bail hearing time. So our, our bail system allows named sureties where you would have to call the surety to the stand and examine them and cross-examine them and the person's released to that specific surety. But what you're saying is in Manitoba, there's another way of doing it, which the court says that you know, the accused would be releasable if there's someone who can supervise him and meet the following conditions, and they don't actually do an exploration in court about who that person should be. That's done sort of privately by the justice of the peace in, a, in another, in a private room later. Exactly, and another benefit of this is if one surety happens to fall through, uh, the accused then has a chance of uh, requesting that another surety be, na be named outside of court. And I suppose it would also allow the crowns to maybe consent or the courts to release people um, on bail at an earlier stage because the crown could say, we would agree to release you if you have a surety who you can live with or who can you know, monitor a curfew. And if that person is available right away, then as soon as that person does become available, you don't have to go through the whole procedural quagmire of setting hearings and examining people. It's already been agreed upon that that would be enough. Absolutely. And it saves a lot of time. So do you think that there's lessons that, from what you saw, that there's lessons that we can learn in Ottawa from other jurisdictions? Right. I think uh, a streamlining of the bail process would be hugely advantageous for the, for the Ottawa courthouse because uh, the rate of, of, of accused persons awaiting jail, sorry, awaiting sentencing is about 70% of the 
the prison here in Ottawa. So so 30% of, of people in jail are, have actually been convicted, but the rest are simply waiting to hear have their case heard. So I think that's a huge issue and something that should be looked at very closely. A more efficient bail system might alleviate some pressures on the jail then. Absolutely. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh-Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more uh, at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com, or you can subscribe to the docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Tamman, and you can follow me on Twitter at mspratt. Thanks for listening. Yeah.